on a couple stands at the altar on their wedding day they're only a, a few miles into a many mile journey that they're going to be taking this journey relational journey that they're going to be taking called marriage is going to be hopefully many miles long but they're only a few miles into it when they stand at the altar on their wedding day and they don't know yet know the bumps in the road that there's going to be or the twists and turns that uh, they're going to have to navigate or the breakdowns on the side of the road they're going to have to figure out and their relationship has probably been pretty good so far uh, elton john's can you feel the love tonight has been playing in the background everywhere they go you know kind of like simba and nala when they're frolicking around in the lion king it's just kind of this you know, I'll, I'll stop there uh, if there was an emoji, they would, be, they would be the heart eyes emoji. You know, that's just kind of been the relationship so far, probably. And that's why traditional wedding vows usually include words like this. Let's see if you can complete them. I, you know, so-and-so, take thee so-and-so to be my wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward. And what's next? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Yeah, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Marriage is a, a commitment from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, to cherish, till death do us, do us part. It's a commitment to stay together when times are good, when times are bad, no matter what comes. And we're going through a series right now called Examples of Faith, according to James. And in James's letter that he wrote to believers, he used four people from the Old Testament as examples of faith, Abraham, Rahab, Job, and Elijah. And we're looking at their lives to see, well, what does James see in these people? What does he want us to see in them that we're supposed to say, yeah, I want to be like them. This is an example of faith of somebody that I want to be like. And each of these four people have in common that they experienced a trial where their faith was tested. And so far we've seen Abraham and Rahab as examples of faith for whom uh, their faith wasn't just talk. They believed God. And they really meant it. It wasn't just something they said, like, oh, yeah, I believe you, God. Like, I believe in you, or I believe you're trustworthy. But they showed that it wasn't just talk. They really meant it. When their faith was tested, they showed that it was alive by their actions, by the way that they lived, by what they did. And this week, we're going to meet Job. And James uses Job not as an example of faith in action, but as someone who has steadfastness in their faith. He's someone who is steadfast. Job went through a trial where he experienced a great deal of suffering, but he remained steadfast in his commitment to God. He didn't abandon his relationship with God when things went bad, when they were difficult. And James, too, was someone who was, you know, the person writing this letter was someone who was well acquainted with trials of suffering. He experienced famine, poverty, persecution for his faith, and the people he's writing to experience similar things. There are people who are experiencing poverty. They're experiencing rich landowners, people they're working for, that are uh, withholding wages from them and taking them to court and who are oppressing them. And they're experiencing also persecution for their faith. And maybe you've experienced, maybe not those exact things, but in your past, in your life, maybe you've experienced times when you've had suffering, where somebody wasn't treating you rightly, where you were experiencing um, like, this person withheld wages from me, or my boss isn't treating me rightly, or this family member, or a neighbor, or somebody's not treating you how they're supposed to treat you. Or maybe you said something about, uh, this is something I value, or you stuck up for your values, or like, hey, this is 
something important to me, or this is or you talked about your faith, and somebody didn't treat you rightly because of your faith, or maybe you just went through a, some sort of physical suffering or a physical trial where you were you're were, you were just under suffering, or maybe you were lacking resources, lacking money. You're going through a time where uh, you're really wondering, am I ever, am I going to make it through this monetarily, financially, like James and his readers had? In chapter five of this letter, James focuses his reader's attention and us on Jesus' second coming. When their suff- that's when their suffering is going to be over. Jesus is going to judge evildoers who are oppressing them and harming them and persecuting them, and he's going to reward those who remain steadfast in their faith. And James said in chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And this is where Job comes in as an example. James says in chapter 5, verse 11 that we just read, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And Job went through a trial where he experienced suffering, but he remained steadfast. And the reasons Job uh, is an encouragement to us, the reason his story is an encouragement, is because we know the outcome of it. God blessed him at the end, and God... James is saying, like, we need to remain steadfast because you'll receive the crown of life. And that can be like, okay, that's great, that I can hope that's going to happen. But then he's saying, no, look, Job is someone where it actually did happen. You know the end of his story, and so that's going to be the end of your story. Here, God was faithful to him, and he's going to be faithful to you in the same way. If you want to flip to the, if you have your Bible, you can flip to the book of Job. It's 42 chapters. We can't cover the whole thing, and we're going to cover... I wish we could just spend, you know, these are shorter sermons. And so my, the challenge today is how do we summarize the book of Job in 25 to 30 minutes when it's 42 chapters? If you want to flip there, you can. We're going to kind of cruise through the beginning first two chapters. It's in the Old Testament right before the book of Psalms. If you want to flip there, I'll give you a second. But the first sentence of the book introduces us to Job by telling us that he was a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. You know, just think about that. Wouldn't you like that to be the description of you? Blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. This is one of the highest descriptions of a human in the Old Testament. This is like, I mean, this is like Abraham quality. This is like the highest this is like as high as you can get of somebody who's like, this is a good guy. He's someone who worships God, loves God, obeys God. He's a righteous and good person. This is someone you would look up to and you admire. Like, I want to be like this guy. This is somebody who's like, this is just somebody in your town and your family. Like, we want to be like Job. And so next, these, these balloons are kind of going to represent Job's life. We're told that he had seven sons and three daughters. And so these balloons are going to represent who Job is, hopefully the, the Bilecks at home, they're not able to join us for uh, health reasons. Um, he had seven ten sons and three daughters, so one of these, so this is Job, he has seven sons and three daughters, so we know he has a wife, and so he has, here's, this represents his children, this represents his children, <clears throat> seven sons and three daughters, he also possessed 7,000 sheep, here's a sheep, another balloon represents his 3,000 camels, another balloon represents his 500 oxen, and another, his, his female donkeys. And then he had five, uh, a bunch of many servants. So he has all these people working for, for him. And so, so that he was 
the greatest of all the people in the East. And this description of Joe's children and his wealth and all these people working for him, his possessions, shows the completeness of his life. He's a, a righteous man who's been blessed by God. His children would often hold these feasts together. They'd come hang out together. They'd have these feasts. And, they'd, and then Joel, this just shows even further how righteous and good he was. After they got done like partying and doing things together, he would go and offer sacrifices on their behalf and pray for them just in case they had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So it's not just he's watching out for himself. He's watching out for his kids. <clears throat> and so there's also, so we get this description of Job. But then, we also, but then the scene in the opening chapter shifts. To, there's Job, so here's his life. Then the scene shifts to heaven. So here we go. This is going to be our heaven scene. This is a throne. I know it's not very great. Imagine that's God's throne. Throne room of heaven. After this description, the, she, the scene shifts to a meeting in heaven between the Lord and these heavenly beings who are gathered around the throne of God. So there's God. It's kind of like this courtroom, like a king. Not a heavenly court, not a courtroom, not like a, a judge in, his, in, a, in court, but it's like God's heavenly courtroom, God on his throne with these heavenly beings, and he's talking to them. And then another being enters called uh, Satan, who's just come in from roaming the earth. And it seems like his, what he was doing was trying to find somebody who actually loves God um, just because they love God, not for like what God gives them, but somebody who like truly loves God in a genuine way. And so he comes in, and he hasn't found anybody. Satan comes in, he hasn't found anybody who truly loves God. And so the Lord asks Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And so the Lord calls Job his servant, and he describes Job in the exact same way that the narrator described him. So God has this very high view of Job. He's a, he's a blameless, upright man. He, he, he fears me. He's turning away from evil. God, that's God's evaluation of Job. The Lord presents Job as someone who truly loves him. And Satan responds, well, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you, haven't you put a hedge around him and on his house on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and has, you, his possessions have increased in the land. But if you stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. In other words, Satan thinks Job is working the system. Job fears God because of what God gives him for doing so. Job is a good person because God blesses good people. Job worships God because God blesses people who worship him. Job loves God because God gives nice things to people who love him. Job is in the, this relationship for the benefits. He's married God for the money. You know, God's God's rich, and so, well, I'm going to you know, be in this relationship and do all the things that God wants me to do because that's going to keep me getting the things I want. And God didn't you know, sign a prenup so that I'm, you know, it's all good. I'm just going to get all these things. And so, so the, Satan says, take away the benefits, and you'll see Job's true character come out. And so Satan's saying, you and Job have a transactional relationship. Job is just in it for the benefits. All the, if you... You're the good things you're giving him. He's, that's the reason he's worshiping you. That's the reason he's a good person. He knows that good people get blessings. And so if you take the blessings away, you'll see Job's true character come out. So what does the Lord do? He agrees to the test. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So you can take away all of his stuff from him. Only don't touch him. And so we shift from the throne room scene back to Job's life. And so we'll just read what happens in verse 13 through 19. 
There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. I'm reading chapter 2, or chapter 1, verses 13 through 19. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians, Sabians fell upon them and took and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So if, if anybody would like to pop Job's, who, who, just got, who just got taken away? The donkeys and the... Oh, I lost it now. The donkeys and the oxen. Does anybody want to pop the donkeys and the oxen or should I pop them? I'll do it. Okay. Donkeys, gone. Oxen, gone. So he just lost his donkeys and his oxen and the servants that are with them. And only one servant got lost. But while that servant was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped you. Okay. They're gone. I didn't think that's funny. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Uh-oh. They're gone. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay. Children. Gone. Job just lost his entire livelihood and all his children, one right after another. And so how will he respond? Verse 20 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job expressed his grief by tearing his robe and shaving his head, but he also fell on the ground before God to worship. He recognized the Lord gave to him, and the Lord took it away. And instead of cursing the Lord, he blessed his name. And then the scene shifts back to the throne room, and the heavenly court is gathered once again. So we're back over here. That's Job's life. That's what he has left, him and his wife. Satan has come back from roaming the earth in search of someone who truly loves God, and, and the Lord God presents Job to Satan again. Have you considered my servant Job? Still, there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, even though you incited me against him for no reason. Satan's response is, Job himself was left untouched. Afflict his bone in his flesh and he'll curse you to his face. You took the stuff around him, but if you touch him, well... That's going to be a different story. So the Lord said, Behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. So here's what the scripture says. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So here's Job. Here's our sores. So now he has sores all over his body. Hopefully you can see him. So now Job has all these sores all over his body, whatever, whatever sort of disease that was. And then his wife 
That's the other pink balloon, said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all of this Job did not sin with his lips. And Job's wife has reached the breaking point. And I mean, who can blame her? We can all empathize with the way she's feeling. Even if what she asked Job to do is wrong, she thinks Job should do what, the Sat- what Satan predicted he should do. God's taken away all of our stuff. He's taken away all of our children. And he's taken away your health. Curse God and die. But Job didn't. He won't. So next three of his friends arrive and they weep with him and they sit in silence for seven days. And finally Job breaks the silence expressing his despair. Like, I just wish I had never been born. This is terrible. Why was I ever born? He curses the day he died. And his friends basically start asking him, okay, so what would you do? What did you do to deserve this? We know God blesses good people. And we know God brings suffering and punishment to bad people. So what would you do, Job? Come on. Cough it up. What would you do? Confess it. What would you do to deserve all this bad stuff? He blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked. So what did you do? You must have done something really bad to deserve all this. And Job insists he's done nothing wrong, that he's innocent. He, he doesn't know why this is happening. And he even accuses God of mistreating him. Eventually, he gives up on convincing his friends and he just says, I'm, I'm done with you guys. And he just starts talking directly to God. And he says, God, I don't know what is, what you, why you're doing this. And he's like, I want you to come down here and explain yourself to me. I want to argue my case before you that this, what this mistreatment is. And I want you to come down and explain yourself why you've treated me this way. And so finally, after 34 chapters of arguing with his friends and demanding that God explain himself, God does show up. He speaks to God in a whirlwind. From a, he speaks to Job from a whirlwind, but God doesn't explain Himself to Job. He doesn't tell Job why he's suffering. Instead, He gives Job this like tour of the universe, and He asks him some questions, like, "Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And do you cause the sun to rise? And have you entered the the storehouses of the snow?" And can, send, can you send forth the lightning? And can you give understanding to the mind? Do you know how the animal kingdom works? And so what is God doing? Why does he do that? Why doesn't he explain to him, okay, Job, here's, here's why you're suffering. Here's like the whole thing. Here's why I'm not doing you wrong. Let's say you make a decision that seems unfair to a child, and they, they accuse you of being unfair and demand that you explain yourself. Perhaps you said no to buying something that they wanted. One way to respond would be to do as they've asked, to give them more information. You explain them yourself and try to get them to see your point of view, like from, see it from your perspective. Okay, you, you see me as being unfair. Let me try to help you see it from my perspective and tell you why I'm not being unfair. And so you explain, okay, um, you explain the family budget, explain we only have so much money, explain how that doesn't fit within the family budget and now we have to make hard decisions now so that I can send you to college. We need you know, money to eat next week. We need to pay rent. We have mortgage or whatever and we're being tight now so that you can have things in the future. We have to go on a family vacation. That's why you can't have this toy at this very moment. You explain instant gratification versus long-term goals. You explain the importance of saving and how credit cards are bad or you know, how you need to live within your means. And you explain all this stuff, try to like, help them see it from your perspective. That's one approach, to get the child to see it 
from your perspective, you give them more information. But another approach would be to put your arm around the child and say, come on, I, I want to show you something. You take them out to the garage with you and have them watch you change the oil on your car and check the fluids while you while pointing out the different tools you use and the different parts of the car and what they do. And then you take them with you to where you work and just let them, you know, I just want, I just want you to come with me today and meet some of the people, let them meet some of the people with whom you work and kind of watch you work. And you're like, hey, here's what I'm doing and I want you to see this and that. And you sit down at night with them and I'm going to check over the family finances now and you're like, this is our budget and it's our retirement accounts and bank account and savings. In this approach, the goal is not for them to see that one situation from your perspective. The goal is for them to gain a, a new perspective on all of life. The goal is for them to see how much you as their parent are managing and taking care of that they aren't even aware of and that they have no capability of managing or taking care of themselves. The goal is not for them to see that one particular situation from your perspective but to see how limited their perspective was when they were looking at that particular situation, that they were looking at this little situation and they're seeing it from their limited perspective, but now you're saying, okay, I am hardly seeing anything. The goal is for them to once again see themselves as a, as a child and you as the parent. The purpose is not for them to feel, not to make them feel stupid, like, oh, you're right, I'm so dumb that I didn't see all that stuff. It's for them to feel humble, like you, are, you as the parent are managing this whole world of considerations and um, things that you're working with that they weren't even taking into consideration. And now they see, wow, my perspective was really limited. I was just thinking about how I just wanted this one thing, but I was really limited in that. And now they're seeing, wow, my perspective was really limited. Instead of trying to get them to see that one little situation from your perspective, you're letting them see, wow, my perspective was really limited in the whole thing. And this is exactly what it does for Job. It, it humbles him before God. And he humbles himself. In the end, he realizes that God is God and he is not. God didn't need to explain why he is just or fair. He needed to remind Job of who he is and who Job is in relation to him. And wisdom begins with this proper perspective that God is God and we are not. And maybe you feel weird about this whole scenario where God agrees to this chest that to test Job in this way. And remember what Joseph says in Genesis 50:20 that he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In this whole situation, uh, Satan means it for evil. He wants to show that Job has no integrity, that he has no faith, that he just has a relationship with God um, for the things that he can get. But God this whole time, it, maybe the, the best, I don't know what the best word is, but it seems like God kind of like believes in Job. He's like, look at Job. He like has this big commendation of Job. He's like, Job is a man who is blameless and upright and he fears me. And he's, you know, he's like, I love Job. He's like, Job, which kind of gives me this encouragement. Like, God might look at, you know, each one of us and be like, look at my children. He's like, God, look at this kid of mine. He's like, they're blameless and upright and they love me and they turn away from me. Like, maybe they're not like totally perfect, but they're they're coming after me. They're loving me. And he's, he's like, if I tested their faith, they'd be shown to actually love me with not just all these terrible motives. But Satan, his belief in Job is he's just selfishly working the system. 
And God wants to prove that, you no, know, Job actually is in this relationship for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Satan thinks that Job married God for his money, and God wanted to prove that Job actually has integrity. And I find it encouraging that God would have such pleasant thoughts about me, just like he had such pleasant thoughts about Job. And what does James want us to see in this story? James says in chapter 5, verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. earthly blessing that we're going to get. He focuses on us on, you're going to get the crown of eternal life, that that's where God's end is for us, that we are going to end uh, with eternal life with him. So he says, remain steadfast until the end. And he says, James's point is that God was compassionate and merciful to Job, and after his test, he'll be compassionate. After he's tested our faith, he's going to be compassionate and merciful to us. And I mean, that doesn't mean that he's not compassionate and merciful now, but it's that he's that's his character towards us all along is that he's, I mean, look at his, what he's thinking uh, before the test and during the tests and after the test, that he's compassionate and merciful, is that he's testing us and showing, like, this is what I believe about my sons and daughters and about my people, is that they're not in this for uh, just the stuff that I give them, that they actually do love me. And that's what trials and tests are for us, too. Why are we in a relationship with God? Why do we worship Him? Why do we love Him? Why do we fear Him? Why do we honor Him? Is it so that He will give us the things we want? Is it so that He will bless us, protect us? Is it so that we can get out of hell and get into heaven? But God wants more than a transactional relationship with us, that we just do things in order to get stuff from Him. He actually wants us, and he, that we want Him. And trials test our motives for being in a relationship with God. They test our integrity, and they have this, they kind of burn off all the things that were like, okay, they're, you know, I was doing that for the wrong motives, and it kind of burns off those wrong motives and creates a pure, more pure faith. And Job is an example of steadfastness. He shows us faith that doesn't let go of God. Yes, he, he yells at God. He demands an explanation of God. He, he wants to argue his case before God, and he thinks he's right and God is wrong. And he needs to learn humility, but he doesn't let go of God. He's still in a relationship with God. He's still dealing with God, and God is still dealing with him. And that's relational steadfastness. I mean, you think about a marriage relationship, it doesn't mean the whole time you're just walking along whistling, and, you know, we just never, nothing ever happens between us. It's like, no, relational steadfastness, that, that relationship never ends. No matter what hardships or what hard things happen between you or misunderstandings or miscommunications or fights, it's like, Job's kind of in a fight with God. You know, he's like having a fight with God, but it's like he never lets go of God. That's what that relational steadfastness uh, means. He's not walking away from God. Job has a faith that doesn't let go of God. And those friends, God rebukes those friends. He's like, you guys haven't spoken rightly of me. They just have this, they're not even dealing with God. James talked about how uh, we shouldn't stand in the place of being judges of other people. And these friends come and they stand as a judge in place of the judge. They're saying, all right, Job, what'd you do? And they stop being caregivers to Job, and they just start being judges. What'd you do, Job? 
let's come on, talk about your sin. They stop comforting him and they stop representing God's compassion and mercy and they're just like trying to get him to say, what is your sin? And they stop loving him. And what's even more important to see, Job doesn't let go of God, but God doesn't let go of Job. The gospel for us is that no matter how much we've screwed up this world or screwed up our lives, that God is still loving us and he's even using the suffering to to help us to love him more. And Job didn't go through his trial always looking, you know, on the bright side of things. Like that's, you know, when we're going through our trials, it's like we don't have to be like, well, we, if I'm not looking on the bright side of things, it's like, well, you know, I failed and God doesn't love me anymore or he doesn't have compassion or mercy on me more, anymore. Job isn't just whistling and telling people, well, it could be worse. I mean, look, look at this. His wife has even turned her back. So it's like Job is just sitting there with all these sores on his body. He's lost everything. And he's not looking on the bright side anymore. He was sad and depressed and angry. And he yelled at God and accused God of mismanaging his life. And he wanted God to, ar- to come down so he could argue his case before God and explain himself. So God could explain himself. And that didn't disprove his integrity and faith. No, in fact, it proved his steadfastness. He's, because he's still relating to God, and God doesn't say, well, Satan, I guess you're right. Yeah, Job didn't really love me. No, God still is, they're still in relationship, and he's still dealing with him. And how does James say God treats Job compassionately and mercifully? And that's God's heart toward us in our suffering. And the, the worst thing we can do in our suffering is to not talk to God and to walk away from him. Because sometimes when people suffer, um, they say, oh, I just need to wait for this to be over because I guess God's mad at me. Or they walk away from God because they say, well, if God was really loving or caring or powerful, this wouldn't be happening. But Job doesn't. He just keeps going back to God and yells at him and is angry with him and is sad. And that's the best thing we can do is keep going to God. I don't know what you've gone through in the past or what you're going through now or what you will go through in the future. But we need to remain, need the story of Job, we need to remain steadfast. We need to remember that God does not stand distant from our suffering, but in Jesus, he's entered into it. And on the, in all of Jesus' life, he experienced suffering. On the cross, he took on all of our suffering. Romans 5.8 tells us that God proves his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, Job didn't die in that moment. Jesus did die, suffer and die for us, that Jesus can... Hebrews tells us that he can empathize with our weaknesses and all the things that we've gone through. He can sympathize with us is that God isn't standing aloof and when we go through suffering, he's like, well, I mean, you just got to suck it up because it's like Jesus is down with us and knows what it feels like to be us in our suffering. And as Romans 8 talked about, I just want to close with reading what Romans 8 says. Because God does not stand far from us in our suffering. So that's what Satan wants us to believe, is that when we are going through, when we have sin, he wants us to believe that suffering means we've sinned. But that's not Job, right? He didn't suffer because he sinned. The book of Job tells us that some, sometimes suffering comes because of sin. The Bible tells us that, that sometimes we're suffering because of our own sin. But the book of Job tells us that sometimes we're suffering not because of our own sin. Sometimes it's just a test our faith. So let me just close by reading the end of Romans 8 and then I'll pray for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
here did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us that nothing could separate us from your love, that you don't let go of us in our suffering, that you, that might be when you're the closest to us. Would you help us to have the steadfastness to not let go of you? In the Son's name we pray. Amen.